Hello, this is William Fink of Christianity.org. Today is Friday, August 5th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. The God of Israel, I'm sorry. And thank you for listening. I haven't had that much to drink. Tonight we are going to present part 8 of our series on the prophecy of Zechariah. This is subtitled, The Broken and New Covenants. It won't be our longest program because we didn't want to break into part of Zechariah chapter 12. Tonight we will present Zechariah chapter 11 and our interpretation of his prophecy. Presenting Zechariah chapter 10, we saw in the reference to the house of Judah that there were apparent near-vision prophecies which can seem to have had a partial fulfillment in the 70 weeks kingdom. But that is only because the remnant in Jerusalem was also a part of the house of Judah. The house of Judah and the house of Joseph being the subject of the prophecy. The purpose of the prophecy of Zechariah is still for all the tribes of Israel, mentioned at the beginning of chapter 9. And most of Judah was taken into captivity by the Assyrians, along with the house of Joseph, which is also mentioned with Judah in that same chapter 10 of Zechariah. In the words of Zechariah, at the beginning of that chapter, it is clearly evident that the primary focus of the ensuing prophecy is in the far vision for the time of the later reign. In ancient Israel, as we explained, the latter reign was the season which preceded the harvest. But prophetically, this is a reference not to a particular time of the year, as Zechariah wrote. Rather, It must be a reference to the great harvest spoken of so often by Yahshua Christ, as it was also prophesied by the prophet Joel, where the children of Israel may expect those remarkable gifts from God, which are promised where Yahweh had said that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams." Your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. It's not talking about slaves. It's talking about Yahweh's servants and Yahweh's handmaids, the children of Israel. In those days will I pour out my spirit. It said sons and daughters. Then it said servants and handmaids. And that's because what we have is a parallelism a Hebrew grammatical device by which the same persons or entities are described in two different ways, one immediately following the other. That's a common literary device throughout Scripture. When we, I'm sorry, we then saw that the subject of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 10 could not have been the 70 weeks kingdom for yet another reason. Because Ephraim, the name which came to stand for the ten northern tribes of the Assyrian captivity, was a subject of the prophecy as well as Judah. 
The remnant of the 70 weeks kingdom. While it was referred to as the two tribes and the house of Judah, could not truly stand for all of Judah, and certainly did not stand for Ephraim. Going back to Zechariah chapter 9, we see that the subject of the prophecy is all the tribes of Israel. That subject does not change through the end of chapter 11, at least. And therefore, Yahweh God never neglected the Israelites of the ancient dispersions, who ultimately inhabited most of Europe and became the Christian nations. As we had explained in the oracle contrasting the sons of Yahweh with the sons of Javan, the proof is in ancient history that the Christian nations of Europe were all the tribes of Israel of Zechariah's prophecy because they alone fulfilled the things which Zechariah had said would come of those tribes. So the ultimate purpose of Zechariah's prophecy is for the far vision in relation to the period of time preceding the great harvest so often described by Yahshua Christ on the day of his promised return when the wheat and the tares are gathered by his messengers. As it says in Matthew chapter 13, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In Zechariah chapter 10, there is one difference in the translation between the King James Version, which is based upon the Masoretic text, and the Septuagint, which we did not take the time to discuss earlier when we presented that chapter last week. So we will discuss it briefly here. It is found in verse 10, where the King James Version has, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of the land of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. We had explained that Egypt and Assyria represented the captivity of scattered Israel. Then we conjectured that perhaps it warns that place shall not be found for them, as white Christians are indeed being pushed out of their nations and dwelling places by the armies of bastards at this very time, which we hope is not long before the harvest. So, that is a dismal warning, but the Septuagint has a word of encouragement there instead. And sometimes when I see how things appear in the King James Version and how things appear in the Septuagint, one may imagine that the two versions are different, but that both are meant to be fulfilled, as it is evident that either version may seem to have been fulfilled. However, that doesn't always work, and we would not cling to that as a dogma. The Septuagint has that same verse to read. And I will bring them again from the land of Egypt, and I will gather them in from among the Assyrians, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and to Lebanus, or Lebanon, and there shall not be even one of them 
left behind. So the sheep receive a promise that not one of them shall be left behind on the day that they are ultimately gathered to their God through Yahshua Christ. The prophet was speaking of the scattered sheep of Yahweh when those words were written, as was Christ, where he is recorded as having said in John chapter 17, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. All of Israel shall indeed be saved. And here in a Septuagint reading of Zechariah chapter 10, verse 10, we see yet another assurance of that. Now, here in a Zechariah, here in Zechariah chapter 11, while we have a new chapter division, once again, we do not have any apparent break in the context. The primary subject of the prophecy must still be all the tribes of Israel and the time of the latter reign. However, as we have frequently endeavored to describe here, because the express purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom was the ultimate salvation of all Israel, these prophecies also have a near vision fulfillment which is apparent in the history of that kingdom, at least to some degree in each of these chapters of Zechariah as we have progressed this far to Zechariah chapter 11. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour the cedars, thy cedars. How, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. How, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage, the vintage being Yahweh's vineyard, the forest of the vintage is come down. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. The shepherds are still the rulers and chief men of the Israelites, who were the subject of this same prophecy in the preceding chapter. But for Jerusalem and Palestine, Zechariah's own time was a time of rebuilding, accompanied with promises of rebuilding. Therefore, the events prophesied here must transcend the 70 weeks kingdom. Lebanon represents the north, and it was in ancient times covered with the great cedar forest. Here, the fir tree, the cedars of Lebanon, and the oaks of Bashan are used as metaphors for the chief men of the tribes of Israel, the shepherds of the people who are being punished by Yahweh in judgment and in captivity. We had seen judgments against the people and shepherds of Israel, for which Israel had been punished and taken into captivity throughout the earlier chapters of Zechariah. In chapter 10, there is a specific prophecy against 
the shepherds. And we would read verse 3 in part. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the rulers. Here we see the punishment of the shepherds is described once again. This too is a literary device called parallelism, where the same idea is expressed, or the same entity is described consecutively and in different ways. Sometimes a parallelism employs only two short phrases, or even two mere words. But at other times, a parallelism can be seen in two or more lengthy consecutive passages. Sometimes those lengthy consecutive passages are divided into chapters of their own in Scripture, by later hands, of course. So Zechariah chapter 10 contained a prophecy which was chiefly against the leaders of all of the tribes of Israel. And here in Zechariah chapter 11, we see another oracle given against the shepherds of those same Israelites. And this is all in reference to the time of the latter rain. They are not describing two separate judgments, but rather they are both describing different aspects of the same judgment. Thus saith Yahweh my God, Feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors shall slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I am rich. And their own shepherds pity them not. Just like all these Judeo-tard pastors and politicians send young white boys off to foreign wars to die in the deserts of the Middle East, here we have it. As we had illustrated earlier in these presentations of Zechariah, it was rather explicitly prophesied that the children of Israel would be taken into captivity as early as the book of Deuteronomy. In the warnings of punishment for their disobedience, it was made clear that their disobedience and punishment were inevitable. In Leviticus, there are similar warnings. And in chapter 26 of Leviticus, the word of Yahweh says, And if ye will not yet for all of this hearken unto me, for all of the things that he would punish them with, if they were disobedient, he would punish them more. Then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. In Daniel chapter 12, we see a vision for the last days, and it says in part, And I heard a man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. There is similar language describing a woman with twelve stars, representing the tribes of Israel, taken into the wilderness for the same period in Revelation chapter 12. This feeding, this feeding of the sheep that we see here in Zechariah, this feeding is described in a different way in Ezekiel chapter 20. As I live, saith Yahweh God, 
Surely, with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people, and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered, with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pled with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith Yahweh God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, meaning to be punished. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. The children of Israel would be punished until they found it necessary to be obedient to their God. And I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me. And I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn. And they shall not enter into the land of Israel, the land of the appointed place of 2 Samuel chapter 7.10, which is not in Palestine. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh. So the feeding is accompanied with punishment that time times and half a time that the woman is brought into the wilderness to be fed by the gospel to be nourished by the gospel is a time of her punishment in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 13 we see visions relating to periods where different tyrants rule over the nations of the earth which are described in one place as 42 months and in another place as a time and times and the dividing of a time once we realize that the prophetic day represents a year as we are informed in places such as Numbers chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 4 in verse 6 where Yahweh tells the prophet I have appointed thee each day for a year we may notice that the 42 months period which consists of 1260 days is equivalent to three and a half times of 360 days each so the times and times, the time and times, and the dividing of a time, which can be interpreted as three and a half times, is the same as 42 months, which are 1260 prophetic years. One half of seven times is three and a half times. Where Revelation chapter 13 describes two beasts, one is evidently the series of world empires until the fall of Rome, consistent with the vision in Daniel chapter 2. And the other is evidently the papacy which ruled over Europe for nearly that same length of time, consistent with the vision, the later half of the vision in Daniel chapter 7. Therefore, we see the seven times of Israel's punishment was to last 2,560 years. Now that period has elapsed. I'm sorry, 2,520 years. Now that period has elapsed, but there is a different prophetic time, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, and that is another issue entirely. We only summarize these things here in order to make a point because this is important to understand in order that we may grasp 
the scope of the prophecy and the length of time it would be of Israel's punishment and until the fulfillment of the far vision. This is the flock of the slaughter. The flock of the slaughter are the children of Israel. The word of Yahweh promises that the children of Israel would become many nations, would become a multitude of nations, which happened during the time of their captivity. Paul of Tarsus illustrates the fulfillment of those promises. He explains those things in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. But, while the children of Israel were becoming many nations, they were also being punished by their God for their disobedience. Both things were happening at the same time. So in Romans chapter 13, where only about 800 years of that period of punishment had passed, Paul of Tarsus informs us that every man must be subject to these earthly authorities that Yahweh had appointed, because the period of punishment was far from over. But what Paul does not say in Romans is manifest in the prophets and the revelation that Yahweh appointed those authorities in order to punish the children of Israel. So it is even today, in the time of Jacob's trouble, that worldly governments are a punishment from God until, as he says in Ezekiel, he will rule over us. The children of Israel are being punished. They are the flock of the slaughter. And at the same time that the unconditional promises to the patriarchs are being fulfilled. So, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, from verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The children of Israel suffer greatly during these 2,520 years of punishment and during the subsequent time of Jacob's trouble, things which, which would take far too long to fully elucidate here. But throughout the entire period of the captivity of Israel, their possessors have slain them and will continue to do so until they return to Yahweh their God in the obedience which is in Christ. White Christian people wonder why every government policy is against them. And there should be no wonder at all if only they would believe their God. And in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 6, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith Yahweh. But lo, I will deliver the men every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. There seems to be a near-term fulfillment of this in the Seventy Weeks Kingdom. In the oppression of Judea by the Seleucids, then in the treachery of the Edomite rulers of Judea, 
And then, in the Roman treatment of Judea, in the years before the fall of Jerusalem and its ultimate destruction by the Romans. But the overall scope of this prophecy clearly transcends the circumstances of the Judeans, and none of these verses can be isolated and interpreted apart from their context. The true people of Judah in Judea are included, but the prophecy is for all the tribes of Israel. So to understand this, we must consider all of the tribes of Israel mentioned in Zechariah chapter 9, all the way from Zechariah's own time and up to the anticipated time of the latter reign mentioned in Zechariah chapter 10. Therefore, we see this prophecy, we see in this prophecy, one explanation of the reason for all of the wars of the various nations which developed from the scattered children of Israel. The shepherds, the kings of Israel, have sent their subjects to war against their fellow Christian Israel nations rather consistently over the last 1,500 years, just as the pre-Christian pagan Israelites in captivity readily made war against kindred tribes throughout the centuries before they accepted Christ. Christianity was accepted by the people of Europe, but the period of punishment was ordained for seven times, 2,520 years. 2,520 years of the white people of Europe suffering their possessors who slaughtered them. This is an aspect of the judgment of our God that even many identity Christians do not understand. And while men are punished for their own personal disobedience to God in one way or another, sometimes even good men suffer judgment along with the judgment of a nation as a whole. In this manner, the word of Yahweh speaks in Ezekiel chapter 21 and says, Say to the land of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Likewise, when the apostles com complained to Christ about the oppression of the Romans in their own time, we see this account recorded in Luke chapter 13. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? Well, of course they weren't. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, do you think they were sinners above all the men that dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The punishment of the people is a lesson in sin and consequences. That is all for the ultimate glory of God. And for that reason, as Christ had also said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
So we see Zechariah continue with the same perspective. And the word of Yahweh says in verse 7, And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you. This is that feeding we read about in Ezekiel. The feeding which is called nourishment of the woman fleeing into the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. The poor of the flock, who were fed, represent the survivors of the captivity, those who had accepted the word of God and who ultimately became Christians, wherever they had been scattered. And that was the purpose of the gospel. We read in Revelation chapter 12 of the woman with the twelve stars, which must represent the tribes of Israel. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days, three and a half times, forty-two months, twelve hundred and sixty days, representative of half of the seven times period of punishment. While the woman was being punished in captivity, she was receiving the gospel of reconciliation. And it is the gospel of reconciliation. As it says in Daniel 9.24, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says in Hebrews 2.17, and the same people, the scattered sheep of Israel, are the subject of the gospel of reconciliation in each of those places. As we shall see, beauty and bands refer to the Old Covenant and the possession of Israel and Judah. So this prophecy is also describing the overall relationship which Yahweh has had with the children of Israel. Three shepherds, verse 8, three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them. And their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. That which dies, I'll modernize the language just slightly. That which dies, let it die. And that which is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. Prophetically, and concerning the near-term vision related to the 70 weeks kingdom, the fulfillment of this verse may be seen in the ministry of Christ, who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and gave the Sabbaths a new meaning and purpose which the Judeans did not understand. During his ministry, he fed the flock. If that near-vision interpretation is correct, then the fulfillment of verse 8 may be seen in the year of the three emperors, which occurred shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, during which Nero, Otho, and Vitellius all died within a 15-month period, I believe. And Vespasian ultimately came to rule. So in verse 9, where it says, And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another, we may see a description 
of those who remained in Jerusalem who refused the gospel of Christ. That's who was left, the people that we know today as Jews, the Edomites and race mixers and lovers of the world who refused the gospel of Christ. And this was their fate during the final siege by the Romans. They ate one another before they died. This may seem to be the case, but the patterns of history repeat themselves on a scale both large and small. This may seem to be the case, but that is because the fall of old Jerusalem is also a type, a model, for the fall of the capital cities of the children of Israel to come, which is called in scripture the fall of Mystery Babylon in the Revelation, because the shepherds have once again sold out, and have chosen mammon over God, all for a few pieces of silver. Once again, the purpose of this prophecy transcends the 70-week kingdom, and a greater fulfillment must be determined. The word in verse 7 for cut off is kachad, and it means to hide or to erase. In the Hebrew of the Masoretic text, it is in the imperfect tense. So it seems to refer to something which had happened to those who formerly ruled over Israel. Their identities may be speculated upon in several different ways. While it is barely evident in Scripture, and not even observed by many commentators, the Tyrians were Israelites, as well as many of the later Syrians as Damascus was taken by David and for a long time subject to Israel right to the end so we see in 2 Kings chapter 8 that Elisha is sent by Yahweh to Damascus to anoint a king there when Israel was divided eventually it fell apart into more than two kingdoms although the accounts in scripture focus on Samaria and Jerusalem the three shepherds may therefore refer to the kings in Jerusalem, Samaria, and Damascus. But in any event, the three kings refers to rulers who had formerly oppressed their own people, as the kings of Israel and Judah had certainly done. On the other hand, while the Masoretic text has the verb in the imperfect tense, the Septuagint translators had read the verb in the future tense, and the tenses of verbs are much more precise in Greek than they appear to have been in Hebrew. And I will cut off three shepherds in one month. Therefore, this oracle may not yet be fulfilled at all, since it relates to the time of the later reign, we may expect a far vision fulfillment is yet to happen. So it is possible that we may one day witness the cutting off of three wicked rulers of Christian nations within a short time at some point in the future. Of course, I would wish it were tomorrow, but if it's the future tense we should look at here, it probably hasn't happened yet. From verses 7 and 9 here, we see that the prophet is speaking of a time in the future, from when these words were written. So from Zechariah's 518 B.C. perspective, it describes a future period when the poor of the flock of the lost sheep of Israel would be fed. 
and also when at least a portion of those remaining would at some point not be fed. Where it is said of them to let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. The New American Standard Bible translates the phrase, let those who are left eat one another's flesh, while the corresponding passage in the Septuagint reads, let the rest eat every one the flesh of his neighbor. One of the curses of the warnings of the consequences of disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 28 says that thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which Yahweh God has given thee in the siege and in the straitness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. So a portion of the lost sheep were meant to thrive and to be fed with the gospel of Christ and the balance would be left to perish. Perhaps this is why the word of Yahweh says in Micah chapter 4, that I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. However, relating to the time of the latter reign, this too may describe events which remain in the future. Christ himself had given us a parable describing his return, where the people of the kingdom were likened to ten virgins, five who were prepared, having oil in their lamps. It may be discerned that this oil represents the knowledge which they had, having been fed with the gospel. But five had no oil for their lamps, and when they realized they needed it, they were too late, and were left locked outside with the world. As it says in the Revelation, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. The verses which follow us, I'm sorry, the verses which follow this, assure us that this feeding of the sheep is indeed related to the new covenant and the gospel of Christ. And in verse 10, And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I may break my covenant which I had made with all the people. A stave, as we saw in verse 7. A stave is a rod or a staff. It's translated as staff here and in verse 14, but it is stave in verse 7 where the staffs were first mentioned. It is not the same word used in Ezekiel chapter 37 of the two sticks, one for the house of Joseph and one for the house of Judah, which the word of Yahweh had promised to rejoin into one stick in Ezekiel's prophecy. But it can be a synonym. Here there are two staves, beauty and bands, and together they may represent even the handles of a plow, which was also a symbol important in the message of the gospel. Here we see an explicit announcement by the God of Israel of the end of the Old Covenant, as we see in another prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. This was ultimately fulfilled in the death of Christ. There Daniel had written concerning the cutting off of the Messiah, that in the purpose of the seventy weeks kingdom, he would finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. 
and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to make an and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. But when Yahshua Christ died on a cross, the children of Israel did not depart from their own wicked ways. Rather, the Apostle Paul had explained in Romans chapter 5 that where there is no law, sin is not imputed. So where there is no law, there is no sin. In Romans chapter 5, and then in Romans chapter 7, Paul explained this, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So the covenant was broken with the death of Christ on a cross, when the ancient children of Israel were freed from the judgments of the law. However, once we accept Christ, we accept the fact that we must keep his commandments. So we volunteer ourselves under the law again. Make no mistake about that. But when Christ died on the cross, the ancient children of Israel were freed from the judgments of the law, and Christ becomes their judge. That is the breaking of the staff, which Yahweh himself calls beauty here. That would pave the way for the reconciliation and everlasting righteousness of which Daniel had prophesied. And in verse 11 it says, And it was broken in that day. It was already broken. This is figuratively, this is figurative language in the past tense. I took my staff and cut it asunder. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. The poor of the flock describes the good people of Judea who were awaiting a Messiah and who understood the prophecies concerning the Christ. For example, in Luke chapter 2, we see a description of a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Then likewise, as it is described in John chapter 1, some of the apostles themselves had been waiting, had already anticipated a Messiah before the appearance of Christ. As it is recorded of Andrew, he first finds his own brother Simon, and says to him, We have found a Messiah, which is, being interpreted, the Christ. Once again, as it is recorded in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, a descendant of Jacob, professed before Christ himself that I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. So after he told her, and all her kinsmen, after he told them all things, 
things. Many more believed because of his own word, and said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ. Other Israelites, those of the captivity, also awaited a Messiah, as we see the Magi of Parthia, as the Parthians were also descended from the ancient Israelites, had traveled to Bethlehem just after the birth of Christ. It is the poor and oppressed, who are not worldly, who are generally humble, of whom Christ had spoken well, for example in Matthew chapter 5, or in Luke chapter 6, where he said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Later, the Apostle James wrote in his lone epistle, Has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? And the wealthy are not excluded. The wealthy are not excluded for reason that they are wealthy. But the scripture also advises them on the treatment of their wealth. For example, Joseph of Arimathea, as the Gospel notes, was a wealthy man who tended to the body of Christ. So we see a wealthy man who was nevertheless of a humble spirit. The wealthy among us today, if they love Christ, would be doing that same thing. So they're not excluded simply for the fact that they're wealthy. Christianity is not Marxism. Not at all. Here in verses 10 and 11, we see an explicit statement that Yahweh had broken his covenant, which was a necessary part of his plan of ultimate reconciliation of the children of Israel. However, the people had already broken the covenant. So, in effect, it was already rendered idle. With this they are charged in the earlier prophets. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 11, it says, They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, who refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Other witnesses to the breaking of the covenant by the children of Israel are found in Isaiah chapter 24 and Ezekiel chapter 44 where it says, And thou shalt say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh God, O ye house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abominations, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to pollute it, even my house. When you offer my bread, the fat and the blood, and they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. So the covenants were broken by the children of Israel. Here in Zechariah, Yahweh announces his breaking of the covenant. Here in relation to the two staves or staffs, in verses 10 and 7, the Masoretic text once again has an imperfect verb, I took, while the Septuagint uses a future tense verb, I will take. In verse 14, the Masoretic text retains the imperfect tense for the phrase, I cut asunder, but the Septuagint has, I cast away, and that uses, that, that's a verb of the aorist tense. So the Septuagint is inconsistent in its translation of these verse of these verbs.
While it may be perceived that Yahweh broke his covenant by putting away Israel and Judah into captivities, the law stands until the husband dies, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7. And it was the children of Israel who had violated the covenant in the first place, to the extent that it could not be kept. So before the covenant could be ended lawfully, the only way the covenant could be ended lawfully is by the death of one party or another. One party or another had to die. In the making, in the promise of the making of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, Yahweh promised the children of Israel that they would not die. And this is why. Because he chose to die instead. So before the covenant could be ended lawfully, Yahweh God, holding himself to his own law, it is apparent that he demanded a price, a reparation from Israel and Judah for the breaking of the covenant. So we read here in verse 12, And I said unto them, If you and I have a contract, you're going to do something for me, provide some service for me and you fail to do it, you better pay up. You owe me. You failed to keep the covenant. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And Yahweh said unto me, to Zechariah, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at by them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. Throughout the chapter, it is Yahweh God himself who is portrayed as doing the speaking. This leaves no doubt that the breaking of the old covenant was indeed fulfilled in Yahshua Christ, and that Christianity is the only legitimate profession from the days of Zechariah. Of course, the 30 pieces of silver were the later price of Christ's betrayal, which the temple authorities had paid to Judas Iscariot. As it says in Matthew chapter 26, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went into the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Sometime after the betrayal, Judas killed himself, and where those same chief priests disposed of his body and his belongings, we read Matthew repeat this very prophecy and say, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. So the thirty pieces of silver were the price for the betrayal of Christ, and were then used to purchase a potter's field. Here in Zechariah, they're given to the potter. A potter's field isn't a field of pots. A potter's field is a field that was used by a potter, somebody who made pots, in ancient times.
mountains, and he would mine the field for clay so that he could make his pots. And then once the field was used up, or once the potter had no more need, he would sell the field. So that's what a potter's field is. In Zechariah, we're told that it says to give the 30 pieces of silver to the potter, to cast them to the potter. In Matthew, the 30 pieces of silver are used to purchase a potter's field. Allegorically, they were indeed, the 30 pieces of silver were allegorically thrown into a potter's field, but just not in the manner which one may expect. If you make an investment in something, you say, I threw money into that. We say it all the time. It's the same colloquial type of idiom. The allegorical fulfillment proves the hand of God in the fulfillment of the prophecy, as well as demonstrating that prophecy can be fulfilled allegorically and not always literally. And in verse 14 of the other staff, then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. The Septuagint has that I might break the possession between Judah and Israel. But even if a brotherhood were to be broken between Israel and Judah, that would by necessity include most of Judah, which was in captivity, and not merely the remnant in Judea. This has nothing to do with Jews. However, it cannot be established in Zechariah's time that there was any brotherhood between Israel and Judah. While most of the tribes of Israel were deported by the Assyrians by the time of the fall of Samaria, circa 722 B.C., and there were apparently some others taken later, up to the days of Esar Hadan in 676 B.C., most of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that went into Assyrian captivity were taken in a separate campaign by Sennacherib in the days of Hezekiah, at least 20 years after the fall of Samaria. Israel and Judah, even those portions, those large portions of Judah, which were taken into Assyrian captivity, were not taken together. These tribes were therefore taken into Assyrian captivity at different times, and while elements of them all certainly migrated into Europe and Asia, they had been divided and fought with each other since the death of Solomon, and therefore we should lean towards the Septuagint reading here, because in Zechariah's time, there was no brotherhood, no sense of brotherhood. There was a genetic brotherhood, but there was no companionship or sense of brotherhood or nationhood between Israel and Judah. The Dead Sea Scrolls are wanting most of Zechariah chapter 11. In this chapter, we see Yahweh promising the breaking of both the covenant and of the possession of Israel and Judah. The old covenant was broken with the death of Yahweh, the husband of Israel on the cross of Christ. That's when it was lawfully broken. After that time, 
the possession would be broken. True Israelites would no longer be able to stay in Jerusalem, and ultimately they would not even be able to remain in Palestine. The word of Yahweh had spoken likewise in Hosea, chapter 2, where it says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall, that she, meaning Israel, shall not find her paths. But there is even more than that. Speaking of the children of Israel in captivity, it says in Hosea, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. All of these are the symbols and emblems of Israel's nationhood. And here we see that in captivity, the children of Israel would have no true rulers, and would lose all of the emblems and symbols of their former kingdom. Later, in his prophecy of Zechariah, when Yahweh does raise up shepherds for them, it is not for their good, but for their punishment. Returning to the subject of the staff, however, it perhaps does refer to the brotherhood of Judah, if perhaps it does refer to the brotherhood of Judah and Israel, rather than to their possession or national identity. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we read a prophecy of salvation for Israel where it says, And ye shall know that I am Yahweh, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in the land of your own. Then ye shall know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and performed it, saith Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came unto me again, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, Take thee one stick, and write upon it for Judah, and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick, and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us? What thou meanest by thee, say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. So the making of Israel and Judah into one stick is in relation to the promise of deliverance and life in Christ, which is the message of the gospel. Therefore we see Paul of Tarsus speaking of the Israelites of Judea and the Israelites among the nations of the Romans, Greeks, Galatians, and others. Write in Romans chapter 10 that there is no difference between Judean and Greek. And in Galatians chapter 3 that there is neither Judean nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Likewise he wrote in Colossians chapter 3 that there is neither Greek nor Judean. Therefore, Paul understood that both Israel and Judah would indeed be brothers in Christ, since the Israelites of Judea are primarily the house of Judah. So we lean towards the Septuagint reading here, that the possession was broken, not any brotherhood. But as a digression, these people of Judah who accepted the gospel 
were not the Edomite Jews. They were not these bastard Jews. These prophecies concerning Israel and Judah should never be confused with the history of the Jews who say they are Judah and are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. And in verse 15, And Yahweh said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall he seek the young, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that which standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. The shepherds that Yahweh raises will feed themselves on the sheep. The people broke their end of the covenant and were put off into captivity. So Yahweh annulled his end of the covenant by dying on the cross of Christ, so that he could effect their reconciliation. Yahweh did not break his end of the covenant so that he could destroy the people. Rather, he died in their place so that he could fulfill the requirements of the law and then reconcile himself to them in the form of the resurrected Christ. Here in Zechariah, where even with the breaking of the staff representing the Old Covenant, we see that Yahweh continues to deal exclusively with these same people, the houses of Israel and the house of Judah. He didn't say he was going to break the staff, beauty representing the covenant, and go get himself other people. Not at all. But the periods of punishment, which were already decreed, nevertheless had to run their car, their course. They were just getting underway when Zechariah wrote. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see a similar description, a description similar to these shepherds who would rend the sheep. We see a similar description of the fourth beast who was to rule over the earth, which was exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, who devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the last of the horns in the head of that beast, that the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Horns representing kings, which shepherd stands for rulers here in Zechariah. So even with the offer of reconciliation found in the gospel, the children of Israel were destined to suffer in this manner under wicked rulers. And in this regard, the revelation of that same Christ concerning the things which would happen after his earthly ministry fully affirms the prophecy of Daniel in Scripture, as well as in ancient inscriptions. Heaven and earth are often used allegorically to describe worldly governments and the masses of the people, heaven being the palace of the kings, earth being the villages of the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, among the warnings of disobedience, the children of Israel are told, and thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass. It's not talking about the sky. It's talking about their rulers, the seats of power, their governments, their kings. And the earth that is under thee shall be iron. 
So our governments are oppressive, while the masses of people cause ever-increasing consternation. They get hotter and hotter to deal with in society. Once again, Yahweh raises up earthly governments by which to punish men for their sins. Earthly government, and especially tyrannical government, is permitted by God for this reason alone. So where he says here that he will raise up a shepherd that feeds off the flock, it is also an allegory for such tyrannical governments. And in turn, eventually those shepherds themselves are also punished. This is a pattern in scripture where Yahweh uses other people, other nations, wicked rulers to punish the children of Israel. It may have been the Hittites and the Philistines, and later on it was wicked kings like Ahab and his wife Jezebel, Athaliah, Zedekiah, Jehoiachin. They were wicked kings because that's what the people deserved. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. I probably shouldn't have counted Hezekiah in the list of the most wicked kings. There were some that were much worse. The phrase idle shepherd would have been better translated as worthless shepherd which describes the shepherd of the preceding verse, who feeds himself off of the flock, rather than tending the people. The reference to the sword, the arm, and the right eye is a reference not to a pastor, but to a leader. These shepherds are rulers of the people, not ministers. It is clarified in an episode recorded in Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all of your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. When a warrior lost his right eye, He was defenseless, as he typically bore his shield on the left, but he could not see from his peripheral vision on the right to protect himself from an attack. So this too is an allegory that useless shepherds raised up by Yahweh in order to punish the people will also be punished in a way which they could not foresee, in a way which coming they do not see. It is a matter of Old Testament prophecy, not only in Jeremiah chapter 31, but also in Ezekiel chapter 37, that a new covenant would be made with the children of Israel. So it says in Jeremiah, quoted by Paul in Hebrews chapter 8, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It also says in Ezekiel chapter 37, in that same chapter where Yahweh promised to make one stick of Israel and Judah. Moreover, I will make a new covenant, I'm sorry, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That must be a new covenant, because they already had 
the Mount Sinai covenant. They already had what we call the Old Covenant. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they will be my people. And from the scope of this, it is clear from the scope of these words that it's a new covenant being spoken of which would replace the old covenant, which perhaps should be called the broken covenant. As we have seen here that the children of Israel had broken their end of the covenant. So here in Zechariah, Yahweh himself announced that he broke the staff of beauty representing the covenant which he had had with Israel. So what's left if the Old Testament says that the covenant with Israel is broken? What's left for the Jew? What's the legitimacy of Judaism? If the book that they consider a part of their Tanakh, of their holy books, announces that that old covenant is broken, what's left for Judaism? Nothing. Judaism was never, ever, for one moment, a valid religion representing the religion of God. Never. Yahweh broke the old covenant so that he could reconcile the people to himself under a new covenant. And in that manner, we also see here another of the many messianic prophecies of Zechariah, which were indubitably fulfilled in Christ. Here, Zechariah's prophecy informs us that the old covenant was purposely broken by Yahweh, but once again connects it to the new covenant to be fulfilled in Christ. Doing so, he also indicates that the new covenant would also be made with the same people that the broken covenant had been made. But Christians instead call it the old covenant because Paul of Tarsus had also referred to it in that same manner. In Hebrews chapter 8, where he quotes that same passage of Jeremiah and then says... In that he saith a new covenant. This is Paul describing the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. In that he saith a new covenant. He, meaning God, has made the first old. Now that which is, that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Paul's not speaking about the scriptures themselves. He's speaking about the old covenant, that it was done. And I'm going to finish tonight with a digression. Recently, there was a post just the other day. Thank you, Ezra Pound. Recently, there was a post made in the Christoginian Forum. And the post was titled, Rabbis Abhor the Term Old Testament. It discusses the ownership, so to speak, of the books that Christians refer to as the Old Testament. And it says in part, Many Jews, however, strongly 
object to the term Old Testament. I would think that's just tough shit because the Old Testament doesn't belong to them just like the New Testament doesn't belong to them. But that doesn't mean that many Christians aren't fooled by Jewish lies. Many Jews, however, strongly object to the term Old Testament. Rabbi Michael Berenbaum, professor of Jewish studies at the American Jewish University, says Old Testament is offensive because it reflects a solely Christian viewpoint in which the Old Testament supplants I'm sorry, in which the New Testament supplants and adds to an older one. Rabbi James Rudin, who is noted for his work on interfaith relations, agrees. I abhor the term Old Testament. It suggests that Judaism has been replaced. Well, according to Zechariah, Judaism was never valid in the first place, because Judaism did not develop until two centuries before Christ. And Zechariah annuls the foundation of Judaism. The friend who posted this remarked that for Jews, what we call the Bible comes down to property rights. Further quoting the same article where it says, To some, what's actually at stake is the larger issue of who owns the texts. Those who support calling them Old Testament basically believe that practicing Jews of today do not understand the full thrust of their own scriptures. And I gotta add this. They sure as hell don't understand Zechariah, where Yahweh said that he broke the covenant that he made with the people. And back in 518 BC, there was only one covenant that he could have meant, and that's the Old Testament. The Old Covenant. The same Jew says, in using Old Testament, they are saying, we have taken over ownership of the Hebrew Scriptures because we are the only ones who fully comprehend what they are. And of course, Christians should take ownership of the Hebrew Scriptures because they never belong to these lying, imposter Jews in the first place. So the devil is now trying to fool Christians into relinquishing the Scriptures in their entirety. Without an old covenant, how can Christians refer to a new covenant? Neither Judaized denominational Christians nor the Jews truly comprehend the meaning of either testament. But the prophets demonstrate that the people to whom the apostles brought the gospel, they are the people of God from the beginning. The Jews were never fed in the wilderness. The Jews were never reconciled to God in Christ. The Jews have assumed an identity that is not their own. They have stolen the scriptures while fulfilling none of the promises, and they twist them so far as to invalidate them completely. On the other hand, the Christian people of Europe are the people of God. They were cast off nearly 800 years before Christ. Some of them were cast off 1,600 years before Christ. That's how modern European civilization began to develop. They fulfilled the promises to Abraham. They became many and strong nations, and they were fed from the word of God in the wilderness by the apostles who consistently quote the Old Covenant in relation to them. As we have proven before in Hosea, in Amos, and others of the prophets, 
as well as throughout this prophecy of Zechariah. The Old Testament is a Christian book, and the only place that the Jew has in the Bible is where it speaks of the devil. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Tomorrow night, Christogonia Saturdays, the last segment of our pre-recorded discussions with Don Fox. Thank mm-hmm. you.